that, that's who we are. That's what we strive to do uh, with everything that we say and everything that we do. So thank you for investing part of your weekend here with this community of faith. Um, as we get started this morning, I have a question for you. Um, how many of you would say, as I caught about three people yawning, which is funny as I asked this question, how many of you would say that you got a really good night's sleep last night? Raise your hand. Look at that. Okay, we need to know your secrets there, right? Um, okay, so even if you didn't get a good night's sleep, how many of you would say you dreamed last night? Wow. All right, good. So usually dreams can be categorized in one of three different ways, and I wrote these down. Um, interesting, scary, or weird, all right? So those are your three options. How many of you would say you had an interesting dream? Okay, a scary dream? Well, there you go. What about a, just a weird dream? All right, there you go. So a lot of weird people. No, I mean weird dreams. That's what I, Sorry get that confused sometimes. According to an article on WebMD, and now I understand that WebMD is like a hypochondriac's worst nightmare, uh, this article states that dreams can be entertaining, disturbing, or downright bizarre. We all dream even if we don't remember it the next day. A little later in the article, it says, there are many theories about why we dream, but no one knows for sure right? Uh, there are dreams that people have that can impact us. They, they, can, they can change the way we think, and, and sometimes we can have great details uh, in those dreams. Uh, for me, uh, I've had a, a dream that makes little to no sense for me, but it's been a reoccurring dream that I've had since I was about eight or nine years old. And it happens every time I am sick with a fever, all right? So I'm on this big, gigantic chessboard. It's a black and white checked chessboard, all right? And I'm in it somewhere, and then it starts to get dark, and the dark is, is oppressive. It's an oppressive dark, and it's like coming at me. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And there's a light that's in the corner of the board, so I go toward the light, right? Go to the light. So I go toward the light, and as I retreat to the light, the dark keeps coming, and when I get to the corner, there's this staircase, all right? And so I start on the staircase because at that point, I realize I'm being chased, and I don't know who or what's chasing me. I never can quite see it, but I know it's coming after me, right? And so I'm just continuing to go and go and go, and these people are following me, and I just try to get away from them. And then as I get out of breath and I'm worried and scared, I wake up. And every time it's happened, my fever has broken. I wake up in a pool of sweat, and I start to feel better. Now, does that make any sense to anybody? You can interpret my dream later, right? But that's just a reoccurring dream that I have had, and I don't know what to do with it, but... That's just how it happens. Today in our series, we are continuing in this, this series, Who I Am, a series in which we're talking about the life of Jacob. And the reason we're looking at the life of Jacob is because Jacob is one of those characters that we can relate to. And so I want to invite you to grab your Bible, and, uh, or blue Bible in front of you, or you can go to the PCC app, and you can uh, click on there and go to the bottom tab on Sundays and go to the Bible app. But today we're going to read about a dream that Jacob had. And we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 28. And so I really want to encourage you to have the scriptures there in front of you so that you can refer to it. And Jacob, as I said, is one of those guys that, that we can kind of relate to. And as we strive to, to be challenged and to be encouraged by uh, what the scriptures tell us in order to take that next step in our faith, regardless of where we are, to take that next step in our relationship with the Lord, it's beneficial for us to look at characters in the Bible that we can relate to, that we can identify with, and Jacob is one such person. So we look at his life, and we look at his decisions, and we look at his family and his faith, and I think we can identify with him, and, and there will be multiple times when we think, you know what, that's really who I am as well. 
Last week, we jumped into this greater context and surrounding about the account of Jacob. We looked at his grandfather, Abraham, his father, Isaac. We talked about his mother, Rebecca, and his twin brother, Esau, right? You, you might remember we invested a little bit of time looking at those family dynamics. Uh, Esau and his dad were close, right? Uh, Jacob and his mom were close. And, and Esau loved to be outside. He was a hunter. He was skilled with the bow and, and the arrow, while Jacob was more of a, of a homebody. He wanted to hang around home with his mom. We talked about the covenant God made with Abraham, the birthright Jacob buys from his brother Esau, how Jacob cheated Esau out of the birthright or out of the blessing from his father Isaac, taking advantage of his father's poor eyesight. And then we focused on the fact that words matter. Words are important. Uh, the, the word of God matters in our life. The spoken word of God gives life and meaning and purpose and direction. God calls us his friend, that he loves us, he gives us peace, that he's planning for us to join him and that we have value and so many other things that God's word tells us. And the question is, will we listen to those words of life or will we continue to seek the approval and what the world is telling us? And will we speak truth and life into the people around us each and every day? Or will we choose not to do that because words matter? That's where we've been, and so here we go. Today in our text, we read uh, a story that you've probably heard before, right? The Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, those are the different types of things. But it's good to put it in its proper context and to kind of understand it a little better. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 10 and look at the text. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went out and set out for Haran. Now, we're going to stop there for a minute. And you might read that and not knowing everything that's going on and say, okay, great, Jacob decided to take a trip. I hope everything goes well for him and he's well-stocked and ready to go. But there's a lot contained in that simple verse because Jacob had cheated Esau out of his blessing, right? We talked about that last week. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. We know that from the text. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, Esau says, the time to mourn my father's death is near and then I will kill Jacob. So Rebekah warns Jacob and tells him to flee to Haran until Esau has cooled off. So Jacob is on the run. He's being pursued by his brother. And I kind of have this vision of Hunger Games style, right? Because, you know, Esau's skilled with a bow and arrow. So he's like coming after his brother. So Jacob probably didn't take the most direct route. He was probably, you know, going here and there and, and adding uh, distance and danger to his nearly 500-mile journey from Beersheba to Haran. And one writer describes Jacob at this point as a fugitive fleeing for his life, a vagabond somewhere between a conflict-ridden past and an uncertain future. And Jacob is alone, all right, traveling uh, by himself through a land that, according to his birthright, was his, and yet he was fearing for his very life. And it's significant to, to stop and realize that Jacob is alone, because think about what we know about Jacob to this point. This could be the first time in his life that Jacob is ever alone. The very first time. Why? Because he was a twin, and I've talked to enough twins to say, you know what, growing up you kind of do everything together and you're kind of always connected that way, right? He was a mama's boy. We know that. He loved to hang around the house and wanted to hang out with his mom. He lived in a family structure and in a time where they were together almost all the time. And now Jacob is alone. He's alone with his thoughts. He's alone with God. And look at what happens in verse 11. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head to lay down to sleep. Now, I don't know if I can ever recall going to lay down or, or lie down and, and to go to sleep and using a rock for a pillow. Anybody else ever just done that? Okay, a couple people have. We probably need to talk about what was going on. No, we don't. Um, I've, I've, done, I've used other things, right? I've used a backpack. I've used a jacket rolled up. There's even been times that I just kind of take on the flat ground and you kind of take your arm and tuck it up, or, you know, trying to get comfortable if at all possible. But, but I don't think that, that I've ever had a rock as a pillow. But that's what Jacob does. He's on the run. He's probably tired. He, he's alone. And he evidently does not have anything else with him to use as a pillow. He doesn't have an extra tunic or coat or bag. And sleeping on a rock brought to him a very interesting, interesting dream. Look at verse 12. It says, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, a lot has been spoken and written and hypothesized about what this part of the dream means. There's a lot of strong opinions on what this Hebrew word salam means. Uh, some say it means a ladder, not a staircase. Others are animate that it's a staircase and not a ladder, all right? It, there's all this talk about it. Um, still others refer to it as a Mesopotamian uh, ziggurat, right? And the picture's up there to kind of give you an idea. Uh, according to my Princeton Seminary Hebrew expert, Right there? The word seems to refer to some sort of ramps or steps rather than an actual ladder with rungs or a Mesopotamian ziggurat. Uh, the point is, regardless of how it's, it's translated, the idea behind it is this Mesopotamian worldview that heaven and earth were connected, and that's what it's trying to show. There's a lot of discussion uh, and the, about the significance of the angels that are going up and down or the, or the messengers that are going up and down. Uh, what were they doing and why and how long did this last? To which I always wondered, why would they need a ladder or stairs? I mean, every movie I've ever seen, angels have wings and they fly. So wouldn't, you know, if I had wings, I'm not going to use a ladder or stairs or, you know, uh, anything like that. I'm just going to fly. Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But there's also this discussion about the use of dreams and does God really use dreams? Well, we know from the scriptures that God does use dreams. We see the dreams of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Joseph, just to name a few. One author suggested that the reason God uses dreams is because we keep our waking hours so jammed with our own thoughts and outside information that God cannot get through. We seldom take time to be alone or to be still where we have the opportunity to hear from God. And it's so true, isn't it? Solitude gives birth to reflection, but we don't like to do much reflecting because we don't like solitude. We don't like quiet. We don't know what to do in stillness. Nothing is ever so loud as the lights in stillness, right? We live in a constant state of being connected, either in proximity because of where we live or through technology, right? We never have to be alone. We never have to be alone with our own thoughts and to be still. And when we fail to do that, guess what? I think we miss the opportunity to hear from God. Jacob was alone. 
And yet the beautiful thing was he wasn't. And when you're alone, you're not really alone either. Why? Because God is with you. God was with Jacob, and through this dream, God gave him comfort, and God gave him encouragement and confidence, both in his present circumstances and for his future. I appreciate the the observation of Pastor Radner when he points out that this was not a stairway to heaven. Thank you, Led Zeppelin. Instead, it was a stairway from heaven, all right? The point emphasized in verse 13, when one of the ways you can translate that text is, there beside him stood the Lord. Many versions say that, that at the top of this stood the Lord. But, but one way to look at this text, as, as they've talked about it, is that there beside him stood the Lord. Because this stairway, or ladder, whatever you want to call it, it didn't give Jacob access to heaven. He didn't go to heaven, right? Instead, it brought heaven down to earth. It allowed God to meet Jacob right where he was. And in this respect, it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. In this instance, the stairway, uh, God came to earth. And when we look at the New Testament, we see in John chapter 14, verse verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that he is God coming to earth. This is something Jesus told Nathanael. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in John chapter 1, verse 51, when he said, Very truly, I tell you, you will see, does it sound familiar? Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus was saying that 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 staircase and that he, it's a representation of Christ in that he, being God, being Jesus, came down to humanity And he came down to say, I am with you. I am not far off. I am present. I am right here. And when God shows up, look at what he said to Jacob. He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God tells Jacob five basic things. He says, first of all, I am your God. I'm not just the God of your grandfather, Abraham. I'm not just the God of your father, Isaac. I am your God as well. The covenant promises that I made to Abraham and to Isaac, they extend to you. And that means, number two, you will have many descendants. And through those many descendants, people will be blessed by and through you. But not only will they be blessed, but I am with you. He's reminding him that I am present. I am here. I'm coming to you. And I will bring you home. I will bring you back here someday. And I believe God gave Jacob these words for comfort and for hope that there's great significance in the fact that that God is saying to Jacob, I will be with you because Jacob is traveling far from home. He's extending into an unknown future and into an unknown land. And this is all very new and, and very raw and very strange for Jacob. And this idea of being brought back home What God tells him in verse 15 was something Jacob wanted to do. Remember, he was a mama's boy, right? He loved to hang around the house, but he's on the run. And I wonder for us here today, how many of us are on the run from God? Maybe we're not physically running from God, but we're still on the run from God. We try to keep God at a distance. We try to to keep him separated from the rest of our life. We keep him out of our career and out of our education, out of our finances and out of our politics and out of our entertainment and out of our choices. 
And yet the amazing thing is God shows up right where, where we are and in the midst he, of each and every aspect of our life, of our daily life, and he says, I am your God. I am with you. And we have an opportunity to respond to him. Look at how Jacob responds. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. To me, this is a profound statement, right? Jacob responds by being aware of God's presence, to know that God is right there, right in the midst. Whether we're aware of it or not, God is right here. As David says in Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And when Jacob is aware of God's presence, he sets up a memorial. Look at verse 17. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob was, was understandably afraid. I mean, can we just be really transparent to say, if God were to show up in a dream like that, you'd be afraid too, right? There's a reason why in the New Testament when angels show up, it's the first thing they say is, anyone? Fear not, don't be afraid, because you are, right? So he's afraid, but in his fear, he, he understands that it's God because he stands in awe of him and, and he worships God. And then in verse 18, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Setting up a stone to mark a, a spot was where something significant had happened is something that was very common in, in that time, right? And pouring oil on this stone, he consecrated it. He declared that it was sacred and gave the place a new name, Bethel, which means house of God. And then in verse 20, we see yet another way Jacob responds. He responds by making a promise. And before we read his promise, I wonder, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you can you know, raise that internal hand. How many of you have made a promise to God? How many of you at some point in your life has said, you know what, God? If you will, right? And we promise that we will, we will do this or say this or go there and give that. I would guess we've probably all done that at least once in our life, right? We make a promise to God or we make a vow to God. And, and, and I bet when you did, your promise to God sounded a lot like Jacob's. Look at verse 20. When Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Sound like any promises you made to God, right? God, if you give me this job, I will, I'll give back to you, Right? God, if you give me this promotion, I'll be a better employee. I promise, I will be, right? God, if you heal him, then I will believe. God, if you give us a child, we will raise this child in the faith and in the church. If you give me what I want, God, I will go to church every Sunday, right? God, if you will do this, God, if you'll get me out of this mess that, I, that I'm in, I will never do it again, right? Right? If you help me this time, I'll never ask for anything ever again. God, if you, then I. You ever said anything like that to God? Is that just me? Jacob, he has the covenant promise of God through his forefathers, right? 
He has the word of God that God spoke to Rebecca. If you remember that, that we read last week. He has the birthright. He has the blessing. And now he has this encounter with God. And he has the audacity to say, if. <laughs> right? If God is with me. If God will watch over me. If God will provide for me. If God will lead me home. And yet, God's already told Jacob, this is what I'm going to do. And then Jacob, you just got to love Jacob because he says, and God, you know, here's a pretty good deal for you. Whatever you give me, I'll give you back a tenth, right? So just pour it on and you'll get your tenth. I'm like, wow, right? Jacob still has doubts even with all this stuff that has happened. And I look at that and I go, man, how crazy is that? He shouldn't have doubts. And yet, Man, in our meaning, in our search for, for meaning and, and purpose and direction, we have so many indications and so much information about what God has done and, and what he is doing and, and what he promises us he will do and how God fulfills his promises. Even though we have the scriptures and we have the life and the death and the life again of Jesus, we still have doubts as well, don't we? And church, I, I just want to suggest that it, it could be your fear or your doubts or your uncertainty, and that may be what's preventing you from taking that next step in your faith and preventing you from taking the life of Jesus as your pattern for life and living life in his presence. But can I tell you, to not be afraid of those fears and those doubts, lean into them because God's bigger than those. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your doubts. He doesn't tell you to have it all figured out before you come to him. You see, when, when Jacob had this encounter with God, it's interesting because God could have laid into Jacob, right? The things we know about Jacob up to this point, they're not very flattering, right? And God could have just, just nailed him, right? Hey, Jacob, you're an idiot. You're not doing what I want you to do. And call him on the carpet and do all these things. But that's not at all what God does. Instead, God extends to him grace and love and mercy. Why? <laughs> because that's what we find when we enter into his presence. We find grace. We find love. We find his truth. God reminds us, uh, reminds us of his truth, his word, because his words matter, right? And he reveals to us his plan and his desire for our life as he extends to us that love and that grace and that mercy. He desires to walk in relationship with you and with me and, and with all of us for us to be aware of his presence and to say with confidence and conviction that I know I need the Lord. I'm aware of his presence. I rely on his protection. I trust him to provide. I long for his peace. I trust that he is with me and I worship him and him alone. And as we proclaim that as individuals, we grow and we take that next step in our faith. And as we proclaim that as a community of believers, we grow and we take that next step in our faith. And as we proclaim that as a church, as the, as the universal church, we grow. And as we proclaim that as a community and as an area and as a state and as a region and as a country and as a world, we will grow because that's what God wants for us, to grow in our relationship with him. And as we take that next step, we respond to the Lord, and he welcomes us, and he says, come to me. And, and that's what he's calling us to do. I, I think it's very significant that God interrupts Jacob's busy and anxious life as he's on the run, right? And he's doing all these things, and he's just trying to survive, and it kind of describes our lives as well. But God takes something that's, that's relatively ordinary, an ordinary stone, 
an ordinary place, and he takes those and he transforms them into something special, a, a place where God's presence is there and he makes a home in the world, right? It reminded me of the lyrics to the song by U2 titled Yahweh, which offers an interesting perspective on this ability of God to transform ordinary things and people and places into something special. And I'm not gonna sing it for you, okay? But the song begins with these words. Take these shoes, clicking, click clacking down some dead end street. Take these shoes and make them fit. Take this shirt, polyester, white trash, made in nowhere. Take this shirt and make it clean. Take this soul, stranded in some skin and bones. Take this soul and make it sing. How will you respond to what God wants to do in your life? Each week, we give you the opportunity to respond. This, this week is no different. Will you respond to God's presence, that he is here? Will you respond to his desire to transform your life, to give you life, to hear those words of grace and love and truth and, and mercy in your life, to take the ordinary, which we are, and make it amazing because of God? to be used by him and to allow him to work through us and in us to transform not only our lives but to, to shine that light into the dark world and, and allow other people to discover and experience him. We invite you to respond. And maybe today you want to surrender your life to Christ for the first time, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and, and to be obedient to him in baptism or to ask someone to pray with you or to, or to just make PCC your church family or maybe you don't know what God is calling you to do but, but you just want to put yourself in a position to surrender to him. We would love to have the opportunity just to talk with you and to pray with you and to encourage you as you take that step of faith and as you walk closer with him and strive to walk in a relationship with him. As we respond this morning, we're going to sing, and there's going to be people over by the cross who have responded to the Lord previously, and they've just said, Lord, here am I. This soul that's, that's stuck in these skin and bones that, that we don't know everything, and we don't have to know everything, and we, we don't have it all figured out, and, and we're not sure, but, but we come to him, and we surrender to him. Will you respond to him in that way this morning? I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's sing together. Let's worship together. Let's respond. We'll meet you by the cross.